My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating Girl Boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. You are not broken. This is the first line of a new book written by today's guest, Amber Cantorna. It's called Unashamed, a coming out guide for LGBTQ Christians. I have to say, I got chills the first time I saw that subtitle. I can't tell you how many people I know or have met or heard from who struggle because of shame they absorbed because of religious teachings. It's so tough for many of us to embrace our sexuality given these wonky societal messages and Add to that the message that your very identity isn't accepted and it seems like a perfect storm. Which actually made me think of the story of Noah's Ark in the Bible and the rainbow that appeared as a sign of hope, which couldn't be more appropriate because Amber is bringing so much hope to the whole rainbow of LGBTQIA folks and their friends and their families. Given that her father is an executive with Focus on the Family, an American Christian conservative organization founded in 1977 by psychologist James Dobson. This is pretty incredible. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. Thank you so much for listening. Before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for occasional Girl Boner extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com. While you're there, hop over to the Books tab to check out Girl Boner and Girl Boner Journal, Both can help you unpack what you've learned about spirituality and sexuality, embrace your desires and your capacity for pleasure and more. Girl Boner Journal just released and the marketing is extremely indie grassroots. So every purchase, shout out and Amazon review mean so much. The journal is less than $10 on Amazon currently and makes a fun gift too, in my humble opinion. After today's interview, keep listening for a very insightful Ask Dr. Megan segment. She will weigh in for a listener who has developed a big-time crush on her therapist. Now I'm so pleased to welcome Amber Cantorna to the show. Amber is a national speaker, a columnist for Patheos, and the author of Refocusing My Family, Coming Out, Being Cast Out, and Discovering the True Love of God, as well as the new release, Unashamed, a Coming Out Guide for LGBTQ Christians. As a leader dedicated to supporting LGBTQ people throughout their coming up process, Cantorna uses her platform to inspire others and works to dissolve shame, foster self-acceptance, and generate a message of love and inclusion for all. Thank you so much for joining me, Amber, and for the work you're doing. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so curious about your upbringing. I know that your father is involved with Focus on the family. Mm-hmm. For anybody who's not familiar, what are some of the tenets and values that community embraces? Well, Focus on the family was started here in Southern California, and then they moved to 
Colorado Springs in 1991. And James Dobson is the founder of that. And he's widely known still for being associated, even though he's no longer with Focus. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, but he's been gone for at least a decade, I believe. And yet people still associate James Dobson and his radio programs and his books with Focus and the Family. So he was kind of the 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 overarching name of the company. But they were and continue to be still very much known for um, their evangelicalism, their conservative values around family, around parenting, around marriage. But unfortunately, they're also one of the most anti-LGBT organizations still in existence today. And so that has really influenced my story and upbringing, obviously, as well. What do you remember learning about sex and sexuality when you were little? What were some of the first messages you received? Well, there, I don't think there was a whole lot, like in elementary age, it's kind of you just don't talk about it. But as I got older, purity culture was heavily influenced on my sexuality and my and my sexual ethic. And so I actually had a whole purity ceremony when I was 13 years old, where all of my family and friends came for kind of this coming into womanhood ceremony. And I actually signed a pledge on the dotted line that I would save sex for marriage and put a ring on my finger that was supposed to stay there until my wedding day when my husband then exchanged it for my wedding ring. And so it was a very serious thing to me. And at the time, you just felt like that's what you were supposed to do. And I did that with all of my 13-year-old heart, not just for being a good role model to my peers, but also because I really truly wanted to please God with my life. And this is one way to do that. But I didn't realize how much that was going to mask my ability to identify my sexual orientation later on in life. And how did you come to that realization? When did you start questioning that? Well, unfortunately, it wasn't until I was in my early 20s, because all those teen years, I just was under this belief that if you do the right things and you please God with your life and you follow God's will, then eventually your knight in shining armor is going to come in on a white horse and rescue you and carry you off into happily ever after. And so I really, I never dated at all. And I had no exposure to not only the dating world, but just diversity in general, because I was in such a very small Christian bubble and just kind of cocooned in that world. So I didn't have exposure to diversity of people of color, of disabilities, certainly not of LGBTQ. And that really kept my world very, very small and really limited my understanding of what, what sexuality can be. And was there a particular instance where it started to shift for you? Was there uh, an aha moment, would you say? Or was it more of an, a gradual unraveling or unveiling, I guess? Well, there was a aha moment when I fell in love with my roommate, mm. who was a female. And that was a shocking kind of throw into, um, into I, what led to understanding my own sexual orientation. But that was so unexpected for me because I had just always done the right things and was kind of the good girl and the people pleaser and the rule follower. And suddenly that broke all the rules. And it was just really shocking to suddenly come face to face with that and just not know what to do, because that was the one thing you were never supposed to be. You know, if you had like a hierarchy of sins, that was at the top. Pretty high up there. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so interesting because falling in love is such a powerful wonderful experience and to have all those intoxicating hormones flying mm -hmm. around and these wonderful feelings mixed with whoa like the magnitude of well and just an incredible amount of shame mm -hmm. like this can't be happening and so your first love your experience with that first love coupled with just intense guilt and shame and self-hatred and things that just were very dark and so it was really unfortunate because it was 
I think could have been very beautiful otherwise. Oh, so were you able to at that time act on your desires at all? Or was the shame just so prohibitive that you couldn't really, you know, cultivate a relationship or maybe date somebody? Well, I think it was a little bit of both because my that roommate was my first experience. And eventually, I think I got to this point where I was like, I have to see what's on the other side of this, because the pull is so strong. And so it eventually did lead to acting on it. But every time we would do that in any sense of the word, it was immediately followed by intense shame. Wow. Shame is so insidious. And, uh, and I think also when we're experiencing it, we don't even get how how deep it goes mm-hmm. or how much it's impacting our lives. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, for somebody, because you're still Christian, you were Christian then, right? Mm-hmm. So y- you would go to your faith when you're challenging or feeling challenges, right? Like you would turn to God and you would pray and you would go to your church typically, I imagine. Right, when, right. But, but you kind of really couldn't. So where did you go for support or did you? Well, I didn't really have much support because this was something you couldn't talk about with anybody. And for me, the belief was so deep that once I acted on it and was sexual with a woman, it was like a double whammy because one, you've had sex outside of marriage and two, it's with a woman. And so I really believed that nobody was ever going to want me again and God was never going to be able to use me again. And I just felt like I was, you know, kind of all the the words they use to describe sexuality in the Christian world of like, you're just recycled. You can be recycled virgin. You're a piece of trash now, but we'll fix you. And, you know, oh, the re-virgining. Those, right. I right, remember that. Right. I tried that The recycle virgin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's like that works really well. Recycled? Yeah. Like what a horrible <laughs> image, you know? Right. Totally. And so that really affected me too. And my parents actually had found out about this. Like the my first girlfriend, before she kind of ran out in the middle of the night, outed me to my parents. And then they showed up on my doorstep at six in the morning and saying, how could you? And don't you ever tell anybody about this because it will ruin your reputation forever. So they were angry. They were very angry. And so I just retreated even further into the closet and didn't ever. And just said, oh, it's not, I'm not gay. Well, and I didn't even know what to call it. Mm. I just knew something was going on because I didn't even have the exposure or the vocabulary or the, you know, all those things. There was nothing there. And so I just retreated and dealt with it in isolation because there was nobody to go to, no safe place. And that just ate me alive. Mm. And I just spiraled downward that in that shame that just overwhelmed me to the point of self-injury and suicidal ideations and just a very dark place. Mm. So that was really when I think when I got to the bottom of that, it was like, I either have to face this fear or it's going to be the thing that kills me. Mm. And that's when I started slowly making steps to look outside this very small box I had lived in. Wow. You had to hit a bottom of sorts, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And really, like you said, choose to, to really live. Once you made that decision to you know, I'm not going to let my, there's only one way, (laughs) there's up or there's nothing. What was kind of the course of action from there? Did you have a plan? Did you have a first step in mind? Well, there was a few things I did. One was I found a good therapist, not your typical Christian therapist, quote unquote, you know, but a licensed therapist who could really allow me to explore my feelings and explore what I was going through and my my emotions, which I really hadn't even been good at naming my whole life because emotions weren't really healthy or portrayed in a healthy way in our home. Um, You were kind of very limited to emotions of happy and excited and blessed, but not like anger and sadness and 
disappointment and those kind of things. So being able to explore that for the first time was really helpful for me. And then I did a lot of work around uh, what does this mean theologically and what does this mean for my faith and how do I navigate that? And that was hard because there wasn't very many resources. Um, you know, in, in the five to 10 years since then, we've come out with an extremely long list of resources that we can now offer to people that wasn't available then. So I'm really glad for that because people have the opportunity now to to get that access so much easier. But that wasn't available for me. So I had to really struggle to be able to kind of look culturally and historically at what the scripture really says about these issues as opposed to what I had been taught oh, to believe. And that so was layers to very, this. yeah, very layered experience. Wow. And I'm sure it was also a gradual process of feeling stronger and empowered and all of that. What were some of the biggest shifts for you that toward the positive where you started to to feel like you could embrace your sexuality and your orientation and your faith? I think there was a switch somewhere in there. I know there was one of my biggest shifts came when I found an affirming faith community because that was huge for me to be able to go and see that it was possible to have both and you didn't have to pit them against the other. And so I saw people that were very much in love with God and very much in love with their same-sex partner or spouse without any conflict in between. And they had been together 20, 25, 30 years. And that was like a light bulb moment for me of, oh, this is possible. Mm. And so I remember going home that day, the very first time after I had experienced that and writing in my journal, like, I've reached the point of no return. Like, I've stepped over across that threshold and there's no going back. And there was like, I think a little bit of excitement with that of like, oh, I think I found it. And then also this like incredible fear. But moving forward, there was kind of this overwhelming um, joy and peace that like I had finally found that missing piece I'd looked for all my life because mm. I had always struggled so much and could never quite figure out why I was so different because uh, I didn't have that that exposure or that vocabulary, but I just knew I didn't quite fit in anywhere. And so to finally figure that out was like, oh, just this huge aha moment, um, but at the same time, an incredible amount of fear of what was to come, you know? So it was kind of this balancing act of, of I think that joy is kind of what sustained me through it in the midst of all the other things that came. Tell us about your decision to come out. In 2012, you mm-hmm. came out. It must have been really challenging in, in multiple ways. I know you never come out just once, right? Mm-hmm. What about coming out to your family? Well, that was by far the hardest because my family was always very close growing up. We were the epitome of focus on the family family. You know, my dad worked at Focus. My mom was a stay-at-home mom that homeschooled us. We were very close. So I knew that was going to be the hardest thing, and that just daunted me for the weeks and months leading up to it as I prepared. And so when I sat them down and kind of told them my story, I, I told them about the journey that I had been on, and I told them about the journey I had taken with God because I knew that would be their biggest fear. But they didn't hear any of that. Uh, it just kind of all fell on deaf ears as they, I think, figured out what was coming. And I finally put it out there and let it hang in the air. And it was by far the most vulnerable I've ever felt in my life to share that with my family. And my dad just looked at me and he said, I have nothing to say to you right now. And got up and walked out the door. And it was weeks before we spoke again. And when we did, um, they compared me to murderers and to pedophiles and to bestiality and uh, we feel like you've died. How dare you do this to the family? You're so selfish. And they took away my keys to their house. Oh, my gosh. And so it was devastating to me from the very beginning 
because I think I knew like there was a spectrum of possible reactions. So I think I knew deep down somewhere that it could possibly cost me everything, but I wasn't prepared for the fact that I actually would. That's a worst case scenario. It was. It? it was. And was that an ongoing? Does it stay that way? It did. Yeah. And it wasn't just my parents. It was you know, my sibling, all my extended family, the majority of my friends. Um, you know, I lost my home church of 14 years and ended up pretty quickly after that moving away from really the only hometown I'd ever known. So I started again with just nothing. Um, and with my family, that was a period of time over the next two, two and a half years where it just kind of slowly got worse and worse and worse. Our communication got further and further apart. It was more and more toxic. It was uh, passive aggressive. It was hurtful. It, we, and it just continued to go downhill. And they just kept pushing me to the side to where I knew I no longer belonged. Mm. And so that was really devastating to me. I was single when I came out. And then about a year later, I met Clara, who's now my wife. And so we started dating and we got engaged. We got married. And so it was this interesting like dynamic of the two worlds of having to balance this incredible grief and loss of everything I'd ever known and yet meeting the love of my life and falling in love with her and yet not having my family to share that with. And yet, you know, so it was this back and forth and back and forth of navigating mm. that road. Just as it was when you're first discovering love, it's interesting right. that you're having these very contradictory mm-hmm. feelings. Mm-hmm. Who was your support system when you essentially lost everything? You obviously had thank God, a therapist, and mm-hmm. you, you had found, you said, a, did you have a community of people surrounding you, and were you able to find support? I did find that support in my Affirming Faith community in Denver, which is, you know, I was living at Colorado Springs still at the time. So pretty quickly after coming out, within a few months, I moved to Denver because I needed that support around me. I needed it closer. And living in Colorado Springs, I had been there all my life. It felt toxic to still be there where you were always looking over your shoulder. Everybody knew me. Everybody knew my family. You know, and it just felt like I was always walking on eggshells. And so I moved to Denver to be closer to that community. And I really think that that decision saved my life because mm. those months following were very dark and difficult. And that community that rallied around me really pulled me through some of the hardest days of my life. And they ended up standing in for my family at our wedding. I had no family at our wedding, but they were the ones that stood in where my family should have been. And mm. so they helped pull us through some of those difficult moments as well, where you're you're rejoicing, but you're also grieving what, what should have been. Wow. As I'm hearing you share all of this, you know, because I've read your most recent book, Unashamed, which is incredible and I think so important. It's almost as though you were being prepared for this work mm. in a way. Do you mm. feel like this? that's a God thing? Is it? Do you have a lot of sense that this is your purpose? I do. I, I think even in my young years before I even knew I was gay, I had this calling inside of me to, for, for writing, for speaking, for music, and to see, you know, like it's playing out differently than maybe I imagined it would, but to see it playing out in a way that's impacting people has been really meaningful. What was the decision process like to write the book? Well, my first book, Refocusing My Family, is is my story. It's a memoir. It's my coming out story. And so that was prompted um, really through, I think, a series of conversations that I had where you felt like, okay, this is it, the time is coming. The time is coming to share this. And I sat across a table from um, a transgender woman and had this conversation of like, I think this is where I need to go and something's happening here. 
And she just looked me dead in the eyes and said, Amber, embedded in your identity is a responsibility to be a voice for change. And that just resonated so deep inside of me. Like I knew it was time to tell my story. So that was what prompted the, the writing of Refocusing My Family. And then my recent book, Unashamed, has come from the hundreds and thousands of stories I've heard since then. Um, because they're all stories just like mine, people that I meet at my events when I speak or that email me or that send me messages on Facebook and tell me their story. And it's so similar to my story. Your father doesn't have to work at Focus for this to be your story. You know, So many people have been influenced by Focus on the Family worldwide that it's impacted across the globe. And so hearing the stories of other people and the questions that just felt like they kind of were on repeat, you know, these certain questions that kept coming up over and over and over that people would ask. And so this is my attempt to give them a holistic approach to when they get to that point of, okay, I'm gay and I'm a person of faith. And now what do I do? This is that book to help guide them forward into looking at things like internalized homophobia and how to know when they're ready to come out and how to navigate difficult family relationships and conversations and how to set healthy boundaries and grieve loss and rejection. And really the overarching goal is kind of to, to change the lens of how we see God because we were taught to see God in a very negative way in a lot of ways. Um, uh, an angry father in the sky that's ready to smite you dead when you do the wrong thing, you know? And to, so to change that lens of how we see God and as a byproduct, then change the lens of how we see ourselves. The idea of internalized um, homophobia is really interesting, I think, because there does seem to be an idea that if you are LGBTQ, you you won't have any homophobia. Mm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it's almost, it feels contradictory in a way. Mm-hmm. But when you grow up in a culture, it's like misogyny. We all have some level mm-hmm. of internalized misogyny or racism or all mm-hmm. these different isms and things mm-hmm. that, that we go through. Would you speak to that? Is In your own journey, did you have to unpack those ideas for yourself. Oh, absolutely. And I think in some ways I still do, you know, like it's a continual process of things that you work through about yourself. There's times where people will say something and they just automatically assume I'm, you know, married to a man or automatically assume. And it's like, do I correct them? Do I not? And, you know, sometimes it depends on my safety level. I think safety trumps everything. So I really emphasize that a lot in the book of you need to feel safe uh, beyond all else. But Sometimes I will speak up. Sometimes I let it go. So you know, but there's layers of that, and I think a lot of that comes from the shame that is instilled in you from a very young age, and the messages that you receive about sexuality. You know, the the people that I meet now who are teaching their kids about sexuality from such a young age, and all the diverse possibilities of that, they grow up without any of that filter of having to think about it in, in that it's amazing, way. And isn't it's, it? Yeah, it I is amazing. I can't imagine it. I'd be like, who would I be? <laughs> I had, I had yeah. a straight ally tell me the other day that her girls play with Barbies on a regular day. And she's like, I never know what, who they're going to be marrying next. Like some days it's two girls. Some days it's a boy and a girl. Some days, it's, you know, and how beautiful is that, that, that the kids don't even have that filter of like, this is what it has to look like this one way, but that there's so many different possibilities of what marriage and family can look yeah, like. Yeah. When you let kids just be accepting. They naturally are so Mm -hmm. good at it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's beautiful to see that happening in some of our young kids. Yeah. I love in your book, there's a section called, who do I tell first and how do I tell them? And in particular, decide who you need to come out to and who you don't. Mm -hmm. Because I imagine there could be a sense of obligation Mm -hmm. that you have to tell everybody. Mm -hmm. 
Why is was that important to address? Well, because you don't. Not every straight person has to come out to everybody they meet and say, "Hi, my name's Amber, and I'm straight." You know, it's it's a very personal thing to tell people. And again, I think safety is very important. And you need to make sure that you're protected, that you feel safe where you live, where you work, where you go to work out, where you, you know, these all these different pieces of our lives. Safety, I think, trumps everything. And so for people, they feel like I have to come out to everybody everywhere all the time. No, you don't. You don't have to. The people in your life that are closest to you, you'll get to a point where you feel, you know, like that something you want to share with them. But it's not like you have to come out to everybody all the time. Like there's no obligation. There's no you obligation. You don't have that. to. No, I, I think that's really to. freeing to hear. Yeah. You don't owe people your whole life story right. or any right. details about yourself. Right. That's so important. What about the assessing part in your own life as far as when do I start coming out and where do I start? Well, I try to take a holistic approach to that answer because People sometimes rush into it, especially some of the younger kids. They get excited and on this high of like, oh, I think I'm ready. I'm going to tell everybody and it's going to be great. But I try to caution them to kind of take a step back and look at some things before they do that. So I say, you know, are you emotionally ready? Have you done the work with a therapist to kind of prepare yourself emotionally of what could happen and what loss may or may, you know, everybody's situation is different, but you're probably going to experience some degree of loss somewhere. Some will have it more severe than others, but it's usually there to some level. So preparing yourself for that and being able to accept yourself and get rid of your own internalized homophobia and work through that. So being emotionally ready is big. Being physically ready, I, I have a whole checklist of things like, are you safe? Do you have a safe place to live at home? Is there any chance you might get kicked out of your home for coming out? Is it Because half of the kids on the street are LGBT. So a lot of them are getting kicked out of their homes because they've come out or been found out. Mm. So making sure that they have a safe place to live, that they're financially independent, that they have that they're able to pay their student loans or whatever it is, you know, like just those very practical things that are important for life. Yeah. Um, making sure that they're mentally ready, doing that work theologically to be able to really know who they are with God rather than having to um, pit the two against each other. And then just making sure they have that community support around them that will rally. Because I think that is so important. Anytime you can have that before coming out and establish that, that will help carry you through those hard times. And so really doing the work to, to, foster that ahead of time. I love that you said it's so important to come to terms yourself and really feel in an accepting place where you can speak freely and, and seeking support for you, you know, because there can be, it can be easy to really focus on who's going to judge you or who's going to, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but what about you? Mm -hmm. And I've heard from people who have sought a therapist and they wanted a therapist who you know, specializes in Christian therapy or or they at least list Christianity on their mm-hmm, profile. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that works out great. They also are LGBTQ friendly and all that stuff. And other times they present themselves as I, I accept everyone. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that actually they aren't very accepting. Mm-hmm. How can people ensure that a therapist they're working with, what are some of kind of the signs or guideposts as far as finding one who's going to be really healthy for you? Well, there's, I think the same, the, the same thing is true for therapists as for churches. You know, a lot of people say, well, all are welcome, but that doesn't mean that they're affirming. A lot of Christian churches now are using that language of everybody's welcome here and we welcome everybody. 
but that usually means, you know, you're welcome to sit in our pews. You're welcome to tithe your money. You're welcome to be in a lesser role like hospitality. But when it comes to, you know, getting married or serving in leadership or being on the board or then you're not so welcome. And so finding out from the very beginning where they really stand and are they really affirming versus welcoming. And there's a big difference there. Affirming is so proactive. I like that. That's I'm going to support you and affirm who you are. Mm -hmm. Not what I heard very often growing up was love the sinner, not the sin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's really what a harmful message that you're sending to people. That's a sin, right? Yeah. That you're sinning by loving someone. And, but I'll, but I'll accept you anyways, but you're sinning, you know, like, or when they compare, well, everybody sins, you know, like that's such a horrible comparison. It's not the same thing, yeah. you know, so it's, it does a lot of harm intrinsically to the people who are on the recipient end of that. Completely. And in a ideology that's supposed to be all about love and acceptance too. And also that idea of who Jesus was Mm -hmm. seems like, Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine Jesus being no, you can't hang out with me. Right. You know, I you could sit next to me, but I'm not actually going to like really respect you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you identify this way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's really that's really wild. Uh, what about boundary setting? You mentioned that as a really important safety step mm-hmm. and also self care. What are some of the important steps that you feel? people need to hear about? Well, boundaries, I think, is something that a lot of people that come from a faith background are lacking. We're not taught to set healthy boundaries. We're kind of taught that you're supposed to honor your father and mother, being seen and not heard, you know, th- those kind of messages where you're you're taught to kind of stay quiet, dis- disagreeing is disrespectful. And so you you learn to kind of sit in the background and not voice what you really feel. But boundaries are natural and healthy and good for everybody. They're not easy. Nobody likes to have to set boundaries, but it's good for the health of everyone. And so it's, there's a lot of boundaries that I think come for LGBT people when they're coming out, whether that's boundaries in in relation to the holidays or in relation to discussing theological issues, you know, I, I like going to a holiday dinner is what you mean, mm-hmm. like yeah, will like I how, show up at Christmas time. Well, yeah, and and will I show up if my partner's not allowed to come? Those kind of things are faced very often. Like my dad would say, "Well, Amber, you're always welcome to come home for the holidays, but Clara will never be allowed under our roof." Mm. Well, then you have to make a decision, you know. And for me, my decision was, well, then I'm not going to come because you would never go somewhere for the holidays where mom wasn't welcome. It's the same thing. She's my wife. I'm not going to leave her behind for Christmas to come spend time with you. That's not okay. So that was a boundary that we both set. And, you know, like it's not about winning. Neither of us got what we really wanted in that situation. But it was about protecting Clara, who is now my primary family. And so that was the decision I made. So a lot of LGBT people come up against that and having to face, well, do we spend holiday time separate? Do we go together? Do we go every other year? Do we go for part of the day? You know, like there's so many different options and everybody kind of has to figure out what works for them. But that's a very common issue that comes up over and over and over. And then another one that comes up a lot is the theological debate. Well, how do I know when to engage with them and when to talk about theology and stuff? And I don't recommend it because... If they really want to learn and understand your point of view, they'll read a book. It's not your job to educate them. Give them the resources to where they can learn about them, the, learn about it themselves. And if they're not really interested and they just want to get Instruct in a debate, you. right? <laughs> yeah. Then no amount of you telling them what you've learned is going to convince them otherwise, anyways. And so it's never going to go well for anybody, you know. So I just don't recommend doing that because it's hard as an LGBT person 
to constantly have to justify your existence to the world and prove why it's okay for you to be here as you are. And that can be re-traumatizing to do that over and over and over. And people may not even realize that, but in the long haul, it does a great deal of damage. So I don't recommend, I think there's very few people who are called to do that and can do it well. Um, But the majority of us, I don't think are called to that. Mm, Yeah. And setting those boundaries, you can at least create a space where you can thrive. Mm -hmm. You know, there Mm -hmm. are these these emotional walls that you've situated and you aren't going to be tested in those ways so often, Mm -hmm. which is so, so important. You talk about your family somewhat. I know probably a lot more in your first book. um, And you speak about being part of this family. You're very careful not to mention your father's name. Mm -hmm. Is that part of your boundaries? What was that decision like for you? That was a process that I came to. I, I did that one, because saying what he does at Focus really doesn't matter. I don't think it adds or detracts from the story. Um, the the power of the story is still there. Two, he still works there. So I think at, as a matter of respect, really. Um, and, you know, what he's done has been largely very good. And so I can't take away from that. Um, my goal was to more raise awareness of the harm being done to LGBT people in the name of God through messages that folks in the family and others are sending. And so that was really my goal. And and so I just kind of set that as a boundary. And, you know, part of it, too, was when I wrote the first book, my publishers really kind of wanted me to nail my parents to the wall and throw focus under the bus. And, you know, and I just felt like I can't do that. Um, If I do that and come across bitter or angry or like I've got like I've got an axe to grind, nobody's going to listen to me. And it's going to repel the people that need to read the book the most. Mm. And so I was very careful to walk this line of being very honest, um, but also doing it in a way that is compassionate and respectful so that people from both sides of the argument could come and read it and find something for themselves and find themselves in the story and hopefully um, create conversations for change as a result. I appreciate that so much. And I think you do it in a beautiful way. I also relate to having, you know, someone in a, high place in a religious organization in my family who did a lot of good and did some pretty bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's something about understanding and and embracing the fact that actually there are some good things Mm -hmm. and those are a part of you too. Right. I I just really think that that's beautiful and complicated and Mm -hmm. all of those things. Mm -hmm. At any point, have you or do you hope that perhaps uh, family members from your biological family that, you know, you had the, the kind of coming apart, do you do you have people reaching out to you over time who sort of start questioning their beliefs and they they do want to embrace your identity? Is that something you think about? Well, if, uh, yes, it's something I think about. It's not something I've seen much of, uh, especially in my immediate family. You know, I would say in my family and my extended family, um, there has been one cousin this past year that has kind of started reaching out to me a little bit more and has a little bit more interest, I think, of widening their viewpoint. Uh, But by and large, my entire family has not shifted or changed at all. I have had a couple of friends that have shifted their viewpoint, um, and that has been meaningful for me. Not a lot, but, you know, just a couple that um, have, because of my story and because of their experience with me growing up and knowing who I am and all that has really impacted um, them and caused them to really do a 180 in the way that they view 
LGBT and faith together. And even statistically, you're going to have relatives. You may already have relatives who are LGBTQ. Right. And, and it's so good that you're there, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and that there is somebody people can reach out to. Have there been any surprises for you as far as people's response to the book or maybe the questions that they bring to you? I think... Uh, response in in not necessarily a great way but the response of just seeing how vast this story reaches and how many people relate to it um has been i think heartbreaking and yet uh very fulfilling to know that my sharing my story has given them a voice for theirs and just to see that it's having an impact in so many lives i think has been really encouraging to know that you know if, if my story my pain my loss can help them do theirs a little different or a little better or you know lessen the collateral damage at all. It's very encouraging to see the people that it's really influencing in that way. Yeah. I'm sure there are many messages that reach people on a really deep level. Is there one main message that you want people to get from your book and the work you're doing? I think with Unashamed, one of the biggest messages is is learning to accept and embrace and celebrate yourself, not just accept who you are, but actually celebrate who you are and the diversity that you bring to the family of God and what you get to display to the world about who God is. You know, God is so much bigger than the box we put God in. And so to be able to display a piece of that to the world is truly a gift. And so if they can learn to kind of see God through that different lens of widely accepting love, diversity, beauty, kindness, um, and then learn to see themselves through that lens Mm. of who God is in them. I think is going to drastically change the way that they view themselves, the way they view the world and how they interact in the world. And so that's my goal is to to reduce the shame they feel from what they've been taught and to learn to embrace and celebrate who they are. That's so powerful because I think so many people can't even fathom a reward mm-hmm. yet. You know, mm-hmm. when you're starting the journey mm-hmm. of something really difficult and a crisis, you think, I just want to get through it. Like mm-hmm. you're in survival mode. Right. And to, to know that actually you can thrive and you don't even know the wonder that's waiting for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And how much better it can get, you know, like what awaits for you on the other side. I feel like I came alive the day that I came out. Mm. And my family's missed the happiest years of my life. Mm-hmm. And so that, like, I would never go back. I would never trade it. Even in the midst of all that I've lost, like, it's been the best years of my life. And I feel happier. I feel more free. I feel more alive, more at home in my own skin. I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. Has this book and or your memoir impacted your own personal growth? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think especially the first one because, you know, writing a memoir is hard to, like, go back and reevaluate your whole life and what you've been through and your experiences and figure out how to compile that in a way that you share it with the world so that it's vulnerable and relatable and, you know, helpful to other people. And so I did a lot of self-work on that and working through that and kind of reevaluating my life from many different viewpoints and, and angles. And I think that was kind of like putting myself through intense therapy voluntarily for a long time, you know? Yeah. And so that was very helpful, I think, for me to, to see my life through some different lenses and to, to grieve some of those losses and some of those light bulb moments that I hadn't realized yet and work through a lot of that, I think, was very helpful. And then I'm just excited to have a resource like Unashamed now because 
this there's nothing like it out there yet. There's a lot around reconciling your faith with your sexuality now theologically, but nothing of like, okay, now what? What are the next steps? And so this is the first really guide to just give them practical tools and tips of how to navigate that. And I'm really excited about being able to just get that into the hands of people so that they have something to help them. I hope they feel like I'm walking along beside them, that they have somebody journeying with them and they don't feel alone anymore. That's how I feel as far as that there's a resource that I can point people to, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because so many times I have searched for a book like yours. Mm. And so when I saw it because of Linda K. Klein, yes. who I know you are friends with, mm-hmm. and I interviewed, and just knowing that this book exists is so wonderful. I think whether you're LGBTQ, whether you're an ally of somebody who is, even if you have faith differences, if a, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I think if a friend of yours is coming out as gay and they're Christian and you're not, mm-hmm. that's a hard thing because I don't think you'd understand the, the complexities that that right, adds. Right, right. And I try to make this broad as for people of faith in general because it doesn't have to be just Christian. This isn't just a Christian issue. Um, we ended up keeping the name Christian on the title, but really it's for people of faith across the board. And what I'm hearing is that allies are reading it because I include a piece at the end of every chapter for parents and allies to help them know how to navigate that part of the process with their loved one and how to support them best. Um, But I kind of expected them to read it feeling like they get a bit of what it's like to walk in their shoes as an LGBT person. But I'm hearing even more that allies are loving it because it's helping them accept themselves more and embrace themselves. And and I'm loving that because that wasn't something I expected. Because they also, they didn't, they didn't, again, you didn't hear anything about sex. So it's like, your sexuality, even if you identify as straight, right. is also embraceable. Right. It's okay right. Right. to have desire and pleasure and all mm-hmm. of this. It's mm-hmm. so wonderful. Tell people how they can learn more about you, get your book. You can find my website, ambercantorna.com. We are starting the beginning of our Unashamed tours, so we're continually adding more and more cities, and we'll be speaking across the country so they can find out about our events there. They can order the book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, go into their local bookstore and pick it up, and then they can find me on social media at Amber N, as in Nicole, Amber N. Cantorna, across all platforms. Thank you so much for joining me. This was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you so much again, Amber. Again, the book is called Unashamed, a coming out guide for LGBTQ Christians, and you can find it most anywhere books are sold. So this week's listener question comes from someone we're going to call Blush, who wrote this. First off, thank you for your program. It is helping me feel more confident about my body and sexuality in ways I did not know I needed. After hearing your recent interview with Dr. Fleming about therapy and millennials, etc., I decided to look into therapy for my relationship. We're not having any major problems, but I felt like something was missing or lost or something, maybe because we've been together for so long. My partner refuses to join me, so I go alone. I'm so embarrassed to say this, but I have developed feelings for my therapist. I was attracted to her immediately, but that seems to be growing to the point that I have fantasized. I can't even admit about what, but she is in them. She seems like a great therapist, and I am afraid that if I say anything to her about it, she will send me packing. Might you or Dr. Fleming have any suggestions? Blushing in Portland. Blush, thank you for your question. I'm so touched that this show is impactful for you. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Blushing. Thanks so much for your question. And I think it's awesome that you took away from my conversation and interview with August about therapy and millennials that, you know, it doesn't need to take the crisis in a relationship 
to seek therapy. And that certainly, even when if your partner's not interested, as you are doing, one person alone can turn the tide, right? That there really are skills and tools we can learn from a place of prevention, right? I sort of refer to it as watering the grass so that ultimately we're having the relationships our heart's most desire. So here you're talking about a phenomenon which is actually known as erotic transference. And it's actually pretty common um, because what happens in therapy, it's a very unique relationship, right? Where you're that person's in a sense of blank canvas. Although, as I say that um, now today, therapists and different models of therapy are seeing the value of self-disclosure when it's in the interest of the the client and the therapeutic relationship. But that being said, what's unique about the relationship is this person is 100% present and there for you and to see you and help you understand your world and your experience. And that, that a held attention, that gaze, that space, that attunement, there's something about that that, of course, often elicits, right, feelings of being cared for, see, like, you know, all the aspects that we really want to be in life, right, to be feel seen, heard, appreciated, known. And so these common sexual thoughts and feelings that come up in terms of the erotic transference is a great opportunity for you to sort of explore really what what is underlying that and how is it helping inform you about sort of your own relationship to understanding desire and um, partnered relationships. And so I'd highly encourage you to talk to your therapist about this. And I know that it can feel hard, but that's what a therapist's role is, is sort of to hold and contain that space to help you in this exploration. And so, you know, when I said it's not uncommon, this idea of erotic transference really goes back to, in a sense, the very beginning of what we sort of conceive as psychotherapy. Um, the case of Anna O oh is sort of, she's sort of the patient that coined the phrase of the talking cure. And her therapist, Joseph Brewer, was actually Freud's mentor. So when I say what you're feeling is completely normal, is to say that even from the, in a sense, first documented case of psychotherapy, talking psychotherapy, that these erotic feelings came up and were part of the clinical and therapeutic work. So I could also say that when and if worst case scenario, your therapist isn't um, skillful or, you know, there's another term we use, so counter-transference, right? So if it pulls up some of her own personal emotions in a way that she can't be helpful or productive, then that might be a big warning sign to think about whether or not it might be helpful to consider a different therapeutic relationship. But what I can say in my experience, because it's come up in my own practice, I've uh, supervised um, other therapists around this issue. Most therapists are absolutely able to not only help you process these feelings, but also it's like, I can guarantee you, you are not going to be the first client or patient that's come to them and sort of express these feelings. So it really, even though it feels uncomfortable, embarrassing, really see it as the huge opportunity as it is to learn and explore more about yourself, relationships, the role and function of desire and sort of feeling seen. And, you know, again, imagine some of the things that maybe you haven't been feeling so connected with in terms of your relationship with your partner, which again may have been the reason that you sought therapy in the first place. So again, I encourage you, even though I know it feels uncomfortable, there's huge value here. And as always, can't wait to hear how it goes. It was so interesting hearing how common erotic transference is. And I thought really encouraging also to hear that most therapists not only can help people who experience this process the feelings, but that 
they've probably experienced it themselves. And I love what Megan mentioned about those feelings potentially relating blush to your own relationship and your partner in some way. I think that is probably one of the biggest takeaways is to know that sometimes the thing that we're focusing on is not the thing at all. And therapy is wonderful for that. So I really hope it works out with this therapist. It sounds like you really like this person. Um, If not, there are many, many good ones out there. Thank you so much as always, Dr. Megan. Learn more about her at greatlifegreatsex.com where you can download free tips to get your relationship back on track. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use for podcasts. Ratings and reviews really help too. They help people find the show, including people who could really use it. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org, and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. <laughs>